In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 3, it says that we are to be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As we go through the book of Revelation, which is difficult to interpret and which has led to many different interpretations, we keep forefront in our minds that there are points at which genuine believers disagree. But it's okay to disagree as long as we are endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But even in the midst of our disagreement, are we not all on the quest for truth? Are we not desiring to come to the knowledge of the truth? So we don't, in our quest to seek true Christian unity, throw out the pursuit of the knowledge of God. These things are not mutually exclusive. We do both. But if we are endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace with those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, it will affect our disagreements. One, they will be less heated because we will keep forefront in our minds that the person with whom I am disagreeing is equally forgiven and bought by the blood of Christ. And therefore, I am to love them because I am united with them in the Spirit. It will also inform how we communicate with one another because we will then exercise charity toward one another. We will be forgiving of one another because God in Christ has forgiven us and we recognize that we needed forgiveness and therefore we all need to be patient, forgiving with one another. But the fact of the matter is the same book of Ephesians goes on to say that when Christ ascended, he gave gifts unto men. One of those gifts are pastors and teachers and a purpose for These who are gifted and given to the church in verse 12 is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the statue of fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So God wants us to mature in relationship with him. He wants us to increase in knowledge of him. He wants us to become more uniform in our doctrine. Because there is truth and he wants us to pursue the truth. And here's the reality. And let's just get logical for a moment. If you have two people and they disagree on any given teaching in the scriptures... If they disagree when considering the same teaching, either one of them is wrong or both of them are wrong. And the problem is not with the scriptures or with the Holy Spirit. It's with the people. Right. So some people say, well, Christianity is so divided and there's so many different views and this, that and the other. And doesn't that mean we can't really know anything? Nonsense. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But 
when it comes down to it, if I have a disagreement with you, either I'm wrong or you're wrong or we're both wrong. But there is a right out there and we can discover it with the help of the Holy Spirit and properly understanding and interpreting God's word. So we don't approach the book of Revelation and say, just forget it all. We're not going to try and understand any of it. I don't approach it from the perspective of I'm not going to try and convince anyone of what I believe is true in it. I'm going to try and convince you of what I believe is true, but I'm going to do it with humility and charity because very godly people and very dear friends of mine. And some of you here have differences of opinion with me on that. Either I'm wrong or you're wrong. Let's put it to the test and let's study the word of God together. And in it all, let's see Christ. Let's see him exalted because ultimately it all centers around him. The focus is Christ and his glory ultimately. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And I'll begin reading with verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Revelation 20 mentions several times 1,000 years. In biblical and theological terminology, this refers to what is called the millennium. Millennium meaning thousand years. There are several historic views that Christians have taken regarding the millennium. And those views are defined in relationship to the return of Christ. So in general, there is premillennialism. What does pre mean? It means before. Premillennialism says that Christ will return before the millennial period. Premillennialism has as a distinction that Christ will return before the millennium. He will reign bodily on the earth for 1,000 years, 
The millennial kingdom will be defined by righteousness and material blessing. And then in this scheme of interpreting the scriptures, two resurrections are taught. At least believers at Christ's coming, the rest of the dead at the judgment. Premillennialism, Christ comes back before a literal, physical, bodily kingdom reign of Christ on this earth. Now, there's a division in premillennialism. There's historic or classical premillennialism, which sees the church going through tribulation and Christ coming at the end of that time. There is a more modern view of premillennialism called dispensational premillennialism, and that's represented by the Left Behind books and Hal Lindsey and David Jeremiah, you know, many popular preachers today. I'm not going to distinguish today between those two very much. Premillennialism in general says Christ comes back before a literal bodily earthly kingdom reign. Another view, then, is post-millennialism. If premillennialism says that Christ comes back before a millennial kingdom, then post-millennialism means what? He comes back after the millennial reign or kingdom. Post-millennialism says Christ will return after the millennium, which will be either a 1,000-year period or an indefinite period of time characterized by righteousness to the degree that all nations ultimately will be Christianized and few will be in rebellion against Christ. And at the end of that millennial period, there will be an uprising of evil and Christ will return, quell the uprising that results from Satan being loosed, at which time the resurrection and the judgment. So, Postmillennialism says the millennial period is basically going to be a golden age, a golden era in which the gospel will advance throughout the nations and the entire world will basically become Christianized and there will be spiritual and material blessing throughout the world and then Christ is going to come back. So in postmillennialism, there is not a bodily, earthly reign of Christ over a golden era of material blessing. That's premillennialism. But in postmillennialism, Christ comes back after the millennium period. Another view then classically in history has been called amillennialism. I'm in the amillennial camp. Amillennialists don't like the term amillennialism. If you put an ah in front of something, it means not So amillennialism, technically, if you look at the word, means no millennium. Well, Revelation chapter 20 says there's a millennium. So amillennialists don't like that terminology. Uh, We prefer terms such as a realized millennium. Amillennialism says that Christ is ruling and reigning from heaven now that we are in the millennium period now. The millennium period, as referred to in Revelation 20, began at the exaltation and ascension of Christ after his resurrection, and that it will end at his return. And at his return, Christ will return bodily, and then 
will raise all of the dead, a single resurrection of the dead, and one judgment. So these are three classic historical views that believers have taken as they have all sought to go to the scriptures and understand what the scriptures teach about what we call the millennium. Okay. Now, our purpose today is to go into this text and we're going to examine in particular verses four through six. I'm going to give an interpretation of those verses And then I want to give a fair hearing to the premillennial view. And we're going to look at the strongest arguments, I believe, presented by premillennialism. And then present a critique of those arguments. But here's the reality. There are strong arguments given for each one of these positions. These positions have been held throughout history by very wise and intelligent people. But as you heard me outline these positions, there are differences, are there not? So either somebody's right, somebody's wrong, or we're all wrong. But let's go to the word of God and see what we can glean from the word as we examine these passages. First of all, as we work to Revelation chapter 20, remember that we have seen the book ordered in seven parallel sections. A common way to interpret the book of Revelation is to see it unfold chronologically, that it's describing events that will happen sequentially, one after the other in time and space. But I don't think that's the best way to approach the book. Rather, the book has seven segments which go back and forth. They look at the events in these segments... The majority of them look at events that happened between the first and the second coming of Christ. And then some of them look at events that happen after the return of Christ, which we'll get into in particular in chapters 21 and 22. Seven segments. The end of the sixth segment is chapter 19. At chapter 19, we have what chapter 16 calls Armageddon. And chapter 16 and chapter 19 are referring to the same event. Armageddon is that great battle in which the nations, deceived by Satan, rise up against the people of God, and Christ then returns and decisively defeats all of his foes in one fell swoop. So at the end of Revelation chapter 19... We see in verse 19, the beasts, the kings of the earth, their armies gather together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. The one who sits on the horse is Christ. Then the beast was captured with him. The false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. I believe this is describing the return of Christ, the final judgment which takes place. And then we rewind, and we go back to the time of Christ's exaltation and events which transpire 
in the interadvental period, the period between Christ's first and second coming. So Revelation 19 ends with the final judgment, and now we go back. And we're looking at things that are happening and have happened already right now. What are evidences for that? One, notice here it says the kings of the earth and their army gathered together. And what happened to those nations led by their kings? They are conquered. They are destroyed. But what do we see in Revelation 20 and verse 7? Satan released from his prison and goes out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth who are then destroyed by the coming of Christ. You see, this is referring to the same events. If the nations were already destroyed, the kings and their armies destroyed at the coming of Christ, what kings and armies are left to be destroyed at the end of this period? You see, these are referring to the same events. The last time that I preached, we looked at chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. The correct interpretation of this, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but I really believe that it is the case. All right? I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. This is describing the victory of Christ and the binding of Satan that occurred as a result of Christ's triumph on the cross and Christ's exaltation in his resurrection and ascension into heaven. And we looked at how this harmonizes with the rest of Scripture, though, that Satan is still active during this church age. Does the Bible not say that he roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour? Does the Bible not say that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces? Is not Satan still active today? Yes, he's active, but notice, and we're very precise with the text, it says that he was bound for a particular purpose that he should deceive the nations no longer. What is he bound for? He is bound so that he will not bring about Armageddon until God's ready for it. Because what happens at Armageddon, we saw at the end of chapter 19, and we see in 20, beginning in verse 7, that Satan deceives the nations in mass, and they all rise up against the people of God. Satan is controlled right now by God. He is bound by God so that he cannot mass deceive all the nations so that the gospel can go forth in power and so that Armageddon does not happen before God wants it to happen. That's what this text is teaching. And now we have to remember this is highly figurative, is it not? Is Satan really a dragon? No, he's not really a dragon. He's, a, he's an angel. He's a spiritual being. But he's described as a dragon. Can you take a spiritual being and wrap him up in a literal chain, a metal chain? No, the chain is figurative. Is there a bottomless pit out there somewhere, a pit which literally has no bottom? No, this is figurative language. It's all representing reality. Satan is real. 
Satan is really controlled by God so that he cannot deceive the nations. This really happened, but these are figures of speech. Because remember, John has seen visions. These are figures of speech to describe these realities. Now, when we get to verse 4 then, notice... John says, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus. As you look at three segments here in verses one through ten, in this first segment. Verses one through three, John sees a vision of what happens on the earth when Satan is cast down. Four through six is a vision of heaven and of the souls of the martyrs reigning and ruling with Christ in heaven. And I'll defend that in just a moment. And then seven through 10 is a vision of earth once again. And what happens on the earth when Satan is released and he brings all these armies to battle against the people of God and against Christ. So we have earth, heaven, earth. Remember, John has seen a series of visions. And those series of visions in the text are represented by phrases such as, then I saw, and I saw, then I saw, etc. Now, I mentioned that I believe verses four through six is a vision of heaven and not earth. You realize if you're a premillennialist and you believe you will believe then that this passage is talking about Christ reigning on the earth. Well, if it is the case that this is a vision of events in heaven, then you realize that that goes against the premillennial position. Okay. Now, what's the evidence for this being a vision of heaven and not what takes place on the earth? And just so I'm clear, I believe what this is teaching is that the millennial period here mentioned is the reign of martyred believers with Christ in heaven that is going on right now. The millennial kingdom period is the reign of of martyred believers in heaven with Christ that began at the time Christ ascended into heaven and will end when Christ returns to earth. Okay? Do do we have that or do I need to say it again? (laughs) What's the evidence for this? And I saw what? What did he see? First of all, thrones. He saw thrones. This word for throne, thronos in Greek, is used 47 times in the book of Revelation. Two times it refers to Satan having a throne. Once it refers to the beast having a throne. Four times it refers to the throne of God in the new heavens and the new earth. The other 40 times, it is always a picture of heaven. It is never a picture 
on this earth. Forty-seven times thronos is used in Revelation. Never does it refer to thrones upon this present earth. So, an evidence from this very book is that whenever we see thrones mentioned, it's speaking about heavenly realities. It's a heavenly scene, or that couple of times it's referring to Satan or the beast, or it's referring to the new heavens and new earth. But at that point, heaven and earth become one, it says. That's in the cre- after the recreation of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so an evidence that this is a a vision of what's happening in heaven is the fact that thrones are mentioned. And in Revelation, thrones refer to thrones in heaven upon which the 24 elders sit, upon which God sits in this instance, upon which those surrounding the martyrs are sitting. Okay, what other evidence is secondly, what is it that. John sees next, I saw what the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Notice that. He sees the souls and the souls of whom the souls of the martyrs. Do we have any reference to the souls of these martyrs in Revelation? Look back to chapter six. Okay, so we're allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. We're taking the book of Revelation on its own terms. All right, and looking at it in its own context. Revelation chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, what? The souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them. It was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. But notice this. The souls are seen. Is this on earth? Is this a vision earth? No, this is obviously a vision of the souls in heaven. What is being described in our text in Revelation? The souls of martyred believers who were faithful even unto death in heaven. In heaven. Back to our text. So the evidence is... For this text referring to the millennial kingdom again being the reign of the martyred saints in heaven with Christ during the interadvental period, the time in which we now live between the first and second coming of Christ. One is that thrones are mentioned here, which is in Revelation a heavenly vision. Two, the souls of these ones are mentioned. Tying that with Revelation 6, it's heavenly. Again, this is a heavenly scene. And it says, these are those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. 
This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, what is what is this first resurrection and what is this second death? What, what do these things refer to? I'm going to give an interpretation of this. Then we're going to examine the premillennial interpretation of this and compare and contrast the two positions. OK. What I believe this is speaking of here. When it says they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, and this is described as the first resurrection This is talking about the fact that when they died on the earth, they did not cease to exist. But they lived with Christ in heaven and they are currently living now. Now think about why would this be comforting and encouraging to the people to whom it is written? The people to whom this is written are being told things such as you guys are going to suffer and some of you are going to die. You're going to face opposition from governmental forces and powers, from Satan himself, from seductive worldviews, which are going to try and lead you astray from beasts and antichrists and all these things. And you are called not to bow to them. You're called to worship me, Christ is saying. But if you are faithful to the end, you will overcome. You will be given crowns. You will be given life. You will have life everlasting. So would it not be encouraging to someone who is told, you know what? You face a high chance of dying. You face a chance of having your head cut off for Christ. To be told, but if you die physically on this earth, yet you will live. Yet you will live. Your resurrection to life is secured. You will live. So I believe when it talks about the dead, the living that they came to life here, it says, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is talking about the fact that they are spiritually alive in the heavenly places With Christ, that's called the first resurrection. Then what is the second resurrection? That is the resurrection of the body from the grave. Okay, there's a first resurrection. There's a second resurrection. What is the second death that is mentioned? It says over such the second death has no power. The second death would be a spiritual death. If the second death has no power over those who are Christ's, who are saved, who are reigning with him in heaven. The second death then would be the spiritual condemnation that comes upon all those that are ultimately cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so what would the first death then be? If there's a second death, there must be a first death. The first death then would be physical death, which we're all subject to. So think about this for a moment in the way that these correspond, the first and second resurrection and then the first and second death. The first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. 
The second is a physical resurrection, material resurrection, when our bodies are resurrected. The first death is a physical death, but then the second death is a spiritual death. You see that there's a parallelism there in that you have these pairs of things. One refers to physical reality and spiritual reality. The other refers to physical reality and spiritual reality. You see how these fit together. So I believe that's what the text is teaching. I believe the thrust of the the text is encouragement to the people of God who are going to suffer martyrdom for their faithfulness to Christ. And I believe the reigning and the ruling is speaking about what is happening in heaven right now. Now let's talk about an alternative interpretation of this passage. But as we go to this, one thing that we should all be able to say a hearty amen to you is that Christ is in charge right now. All right. Jesus Christ has been exalted. The scriptures say that he triumphed over the principalities and the powers and he's made a show of them openly. The scriptures say that he came to destroy the works of the devil. The scriptures say that he must reign until he has put every enemy under his feet. All right. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth and on earth. Go. So we can all agree and we ought to all agree that Christ is king now. And that he reigns. He reigns. But then we ask the question, when, why, what, how, all these other little things. But you see what is more important? What, what is more important? That we all exactly agree on all the little details or that we all resonate with Christ as king and as Lord and our Savior and the one who will come again to fix everything that is messed up in this world and that we'll see him face to face if we're his. You see, that's the big picture. That's the big picture. Okay, well, let's look into some of the details. This passage, Revelation chapter 20, is a key passage, a chair passage, a linchpin passage for premillennialism. Notable scholars, as notable as George Eldon Ladd, have said that if this passage is taken out of the equation, premillennialism is not going to be seen. Now, we're going to look at that this isn't the only passage that premillennialists look to in support of a premillennial kingdom. There are Old Testament prophecies that speak to that. We're going to look to those as well. But the fact of the matter is, this is the only passage in all of the scriptures that mentions a millennial period of time. The only one. As we go into this analysis, I'm going to mention this once again. In hermeneutics, and this is, this is the way I roll. This is just simply the way I roll. There are, in the Bible, key passages of Scripture which are so clear, so direct, and so specifically speak to an issue 
that I'll look at those passages at times and say, this is a definitive passage to help me understand this whole issue at hand. Okay? I'm not going to go into this subject, but the whole issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Matthew chapter 19, commenting on Deuteronomy, is such a key passage and so expressed, so explicit regarding divorce when it is appropriate that I look to that as a key text in my hermeneutic. And then I look to other texts to see how these all flow together. For the premillennialist, Revelation 20 is that one key text which will define for them the subject of the millennium and they will go to other passages then in support. But for me, if the rest of the Bible speaks to the issues at hand, I'm hesitant to place so much weight on a passage in the book of the Bible that is the most difficult to interpret. Revelation, bar none, is absolutely the most difficult book to interpret in the entire Bible. Because it's filled with figures of speech. It's filled with symbolism. Because it's a a genre of literature that is not extant. It doesn't even exist today. Nobody's writing an apocalyptic genre today. And so it's very difficult for our modern minds to wrap ourselves around the book of Revelation. And there have been multiple disagreements in regard to Revelation. So I'm hesitant if these issues are spoken to in clear, prose, didactic, teaching passages of Scripture, such as in the epistles and other places. I'm hesitant to make this the one passage that interprets for me this whole issue. That's just where I'm coming from with this. And generally speaking, in hermeneutics, we should look to clearer passages to help us understand less clear passages. We should look to passages which are prose to help us understand figurative or poetical passages. We should look to passages that are very directly teaching on a subject to help us understand those that may be indirectly. Those are just basic rules of hermeneutics. Okay. Just in looking at Revelation chapter 20, though, what is the weakness in the amillennial interpretation? I think probably the greatest weakness has to do with the terminology of raised to life or the resurrection and that the dead lived again. Okay? The terminology. um, The word for lived here is zao, and the word for resurrection or raised is anastasis in Greek. In the premillennial camp, it has been used as a frequent argument. It's been pointed to that the word, for instance, anastasis, referring to resurrection, in the rest of the Bible, that that word is used to talk about a bodily resurrection, not spiritual life. Okay? So the argument says that if you look at this word, the rest of Scripture uses it to refer to bodily resurrection, so why would we interpret it differently here? Now, I've given reasons for why I think it should be interpreted differently in this passage. But that is the argument, and that is a strong argument. 
in interpreting this text. Okay? Um, Let me find right quickly here. There was a dictum known as Alfred's dictum. Henry Alfred famously declared this, and I quote, If in a passage where two resurrections are mentioned, where certain of the Sukai Ezesan at the first and the rest of the Necroi Ezesan only at the end of a specified period after that first, if in such a passage the first resurrection may be understood to mean spiritual rising with Christ, while the second means literal rising from the grave, then there is an end of all significance in language and scripture is wiped out as a definite testimony to anything. If the first resurrection is spiritual, then so is the second, which I suppose none will be hardy enough to maintain. But if the second is literal, then so is the first. So Alfred here in this dictum, he's saying, we see a first resurrection and a second resurrection mentioned. You are millennialists. If you say the first is spiritual, but it's the same word being used, and and then it describes the rest of the dead being raised, and it uses the same word, after this first group is raised, then that just makes an end of all language. If you say one is spiritual and the other is physical, that just does not work. You just can't do that. Okay? Does that make any sense to anyone? All right? So he's saying, when it says first resurrection, if you say that's spiritual, then the second resurrection has to be spiritual too because it's talking about groups of people and it says this group, and then the rest were not raised till later. Okay? Now, this would generally be a good rule of hermeneutics, except that there are exceptions to this in the Bible itself. One such exception is in Matthew chapter, or John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus talks about the day of resurrection... And he talks about two resurrections. But in the first resurrection, he's speaking of people spiritually being saved. In the second resurrection, he's talking about bodily. So Alfred's dictum would be correct if there were not biblical exceptions to this rule. Okay, so look at John chapter 5. And beginning with verse 25, Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. Now, is he talking about bodily resurrection from the grave at that point? He's saying the hour is now here. It's here. He's saying, I'm here. I'm preaching to you. The time has come. The dead are going to hear my voice and they're going to live. See, mean they're going to come out of the grave like Lazarus came out of the grave. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes walking out all wrapped up in all his mummy clothes and everything. He comes out and he's alive. No, it's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the gospel going forth through his preaching and people being spiritually brought to life spiritually raised. And the Bible talks about a spiritual resurrection. It says that we who are in Christ have been raised with Christ. It uses the term resurrection to speak about us in our salvation. But then notice in this very same passage, Jesus goes on to say, 
Do not marvel at this, verse 28, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. You notice that? So in the same passage, Jesus speaks about spiritual life or resurrection, and he speaks about physical life and resurrection. And so there's a precedent for that in Scripture. And therefore, I think that Revelation 20, written by John, the same apostle who wrote this gospel, can rightly be seen as referring to a spiritual living with the Lord in the heavenly places, as well as a physical resurrection, which is to come. Now, another key component of premillennialism, if you're a premillennialist, you will necessarily believe in at least two different resurrections separated by at least a thousand years. Because in the text in Revelation, it talks about the souls of the martyred ones coming to life. And then it says the rest of the dead did not live until the thousand year period was over. Okay, so you're going to have to believe in two resurrections and premillennialists believe in at least two bodily resurrections. They believe that those who have died in Christ will be raised bodily when he, Christ, bodily returns to the earth. And then the ungodly will be raised after Satan is released, Christ crushes all of his enemies, and the final judgment takes place. Okay? Now, interestingly, in our text in John, and when we look at we're not going to take the time to today. If you look at multiple other passages of Scripture, everywhere else in Scripture speaks more singularly of the resurrection. It never speaks of multiple resurrections. It speaks of a general resurrection of all the dead. So one of the reasons, again, as I look at all of Scripture and I interpret Revelation 20 from an amillennial perspective, not as talking about two physical resurrections, is when you look at John here, Jesus says the hour is coming when the dead, both the unrighteous and the righteous, will be raised. He's not acting like that's going to be two resurrections separated by at least a thousand years. Now, from the premillennial camp, they will point out that the word hour can mean an unspecified period of time. So it could mean a longer period of time than just like a single hour like we think of it. And they are correct that it could. But notice Jesus, though, seems to speak of a combined resurrection of the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 24 speaks of it in this way as well. In Daniel chapter 12, when it says that those who are in the dust will awaken, again, these seem to speak of a singular event, not separate events separated by at least a thousand years. Okay? So, again, one of the key arguments of premillennialism in regard to Revelation 20 is the use of these terms that they lived and the term resurrection 
But it is a hermeneutical principle that even if everywhere else in Scripture a word is used to mean one thing, that that word can mean something different in a different context because context determines meaning. That's the way language works, right? You have to have a context to what is said to understand the meaning of what is said. If you pull up to a parking lot and you're driving an F-150 and you see in the Harps parking lot a sign that says no trucks, are you going to say, oh, I'm driving an F-150, that's not me, and you know, go park in the grass and walk over to Harps? No, what's the context when it says no trucks? It means no big rigs, no 18-wheelers, okay? Just littler trucks. <laughs> they don't want you taking up their whole parking lot. There's a context to that statement. We, we speak in terms of context. Words have meaning only in context. And so there can be a, a word that's used multiple times in one instance and is not used uh, in the same way in another. And maybe if you're thinking very carefully, you're like, oh, well, pastor, you've you mentioned the word thrones as an evidence for your position in, the, in Revelation. It's always heavenly. Well, yes, and I will acknowledge that it could be different in this text. But we have to look to the context and ask, does the context demand that it be interpreted differently? And my answer is no, the context fits the heavenly vision better than the earthly vision. Okay, so you see, I'm trying to take the text on its own terms and interpret it properly in its own context. Not just trying to sweep it under the rug because I'm an amillennialist and it doesn't fit my position. (laughs) Okay, you understand where we're coming from. Okay, well, I understand that this could begin to get tedious and, you know, sorting through all of this uh, can be difficult if you haven't already thought through all of these things in advance. So let's take a quick look at another argument in support of premillennialism, and that is Old Testament prophecies. This argument says that there are prophecies in the Old Testament which seem to indicate an era, a period of time, that is unlike any period of time in which we have lived, in which... You have a combination of great spiritual and material prosperity that yet still there is some death, there is still some sin that is present. And so it's not like it'll be in the new heavens and new earth when all of evil is removed and cast into the lake of fire and only righteousness remains. So let's say that these texts or these passages just seem a little too messy, and they just seem to predict this period which is a little bit different than both the current age that we're in and that which is to come when everything's going to be reconciled and redeemed and restored and all evil put away. Such passages as Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25 uh, Brother Rick read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which quotes Isaiah 25 when it talks about where, O death, is now thy sting. Okay? So Isaiah chapter 25. Verse 
And let's just jump down to verse 6 for a moment. In this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. He will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people. And the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The the rebuke of his people, he will take away from all the earth where the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For on this mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest and Moab shall be trampled down under him. As straw is trampled down for the refuse heap, he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. He will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands, the fortress of the high fort of your walls. He will bring down, lay low and bring to the ground down to the dust. And premillennialists will see this as referring to the premillennial kingdom in which Christ is reigning. I think it is referring to Christ's final triumph. And that's referenced in 1 Corinthians 15, which comments on it and says that that will happen at the final trumpet when Christ returns and the dead are raised. Okay. Well, another passage, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, and this begins... Speaking about Christ as the Messiah and the spirit of the Lord resting upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might. But then notice. In verse. Four, it says the with righteousness, he shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the wean child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. And then it says he will set up a banner in the nations in verse 12, gather the dispersed from Judah. And it goes on from there. This is pictured by premillennialists, again, as the premillennial kingdom, where you have general prosperity, general material blessing, but yet people are still being saved. Gentiles are still coming in. And it's this mixture of a kingdom where you have raised saints dwelling with unregenerate people who will yet die. Okay, you realize if you hold to premillennialism, then you believe that there's a period of time in which there will be resurrected saints who cannot die in glorified bodies living alongside of people who will die and wait the resurrection to come. One final passage, Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65. 
It says, beginning in verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Now, if we were just to stop right there, what would you say that that describes? That describes the eternal state of the righteous in heaven. Why? Because it says a new heavens and a new earth. It says there will be no more sorrow, no more crying. That is all referenced in Revelation to talk about the new heavens and new earth. So if we stop right there, then we would say, well, that's clearly talking about the age that is to come. It's not talking about a kingdom where they're dead and living and all this going on together. Well, the next few verses are more difficult for our millennialists. Okay, so... It says in 20, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them and plant vineyards and eat them. They shall not build in another inhabit. They shall not plant in another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall the days of my people be. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. Well, you see the difficulty in interpreting this passage. In the new heavens and new earth, is there going to be death? No. Is there going to be marriage and bearing of children? No. But this text seems to be describing an age in which There is prosperity, righteousness, new heavens and new earth created, everything else, but yet there's still death and there's still marriage. So what is the understanding of this? I believe, again, that the proper hermeneutic is to let the more clear passages that directly speak to the matter help us to understand the less clear passages. And in this case, this is a prophetic passage. Passages of prophecy are known, again, for symbolic language, are they not? In the Bible, when it talks about Babylon being judged, and it says that the moon was darkened, the stars fell from the sky. Did the stars literally fall from the sky to the earth when Babylon as an empire was judged? No, that was figurative language talking about great powers being brought down. It's figurative to describe God's judgment and destruction. Prophetic language is highly figurative. So what is this speaking about here? One, since there's such a clear reference in the New Testament, which helps us understand this, that the new heaven and new earth and all tears being wiped away and everything is talking about the eternal state, it's talking about heaven. Then when when he says, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, the child shall die 100 years old. I think what the prophet is saying, in essence, is imagine imagine a period of time that's so glorious that that an an infant, you know, is not going to die before 100 years old. Just think about that. Think about times that are so glorious that people are going to live beyond normal life expectancy. There's not going to be any infant mortality. So he's not literally saying that people are going to die during that age, but he's saying to the people in the, in the way that they think and they can understand, well, just imagine a time when infant mortality is done. 
And it's not going to happen any longer. Okay? I realize again that these passages that I've been looking for are the stronger arguments for premillennialism. But as we look at all of Scripture and we look at the more specific and more direct passages of Scripture that talk about what happens at the return of Christ, those passages give us a glorious picture that when Jesus Christ returns, that death is done. It is swallowed up in victory. That when Jesus Christ returns, all the dead are going to be raised and there's going to be the final judgment. Okay? These passages, when you put all of them together, present a compelling case that there is not going to be a resurrection of the righteous who will then dwell alongside the wicked for a long period of time, and then people are going to be saved. And then what happens to those people according to premillennialism? If they're saved, because they believe people will be saved during that period, what happens to them? You see, the, the scriptures say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What happens if you're a believer and you die right now? Where do you go? You go to be with the Lord. Do you go to be with the Lord in a resurrected body right now? No, where is Tracy Graves right now and in what form is she? She's in a spirit form present with the Lord, awaiting the resurrection. Well, according to premillennialism, people are going to be saved during the millennial kingdom. But yet Jesus is bodily dwelling on the earth. So are there going to be a bunch of disembodied souls of the dead saints floating around Jesus? Or is everybody going to get an individual resurrection instantly? But I simply ask the question, where do you see any of that in the scriptures? And I would posit that there are many scriptures that speak directly against that being the case. Okay? So again, we let the most clear passages interpret the less clear. And we close with this. A book that I recommend to you, I've already recommended Sam Waldron's book, The End Times Made Simple. Another that I recommend to you is called Kingdom Come by Sam Storms. Excellent book. He presents arguments for and against. He very thoroughly deals with all of these subjects. Sam Storms, in this book, Kingdom Come, mentions that he was a premillennialist. He was a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, a bastion of premillennialism. He was taught it. He believed it. And then he began to see things in Scripture that switched his view. And here's what he says. My departure from premillennialism was gradual and came as a result of two discoveries as I studied Scripture. First, I devoted myself to a thorough examination of what the New Testament said would occur at the time of Christ's second coming. What I found was a consistent witness concerning what would either end or begin as a result of our Lord's return to the earth. Sin in the lives of God's people would end. Corruption of the natural creation ends. The experience of physical death would terminate upon the appearance of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the resurrection of the body, the final judgment, and the inauguration of the new heavens and new earth would ensue. 
And he goes on to say, why is this a problem with premillennialism? He says this, if you're premillennialist, you must necessarily believe that physical death will continue to exist beyond the time of Christ's coming. If you're a premillennialist, you must necessarily believe that the natural creation will continue beyond the time of Christ's second coming to be subjected to the curse imposed by the fall of man. If you're a premillennialist, you must believe that the new heavens and new earth will not be introduced until 1,000 years after the return of Christ. You must necessarily believe that unbelievers will not finally be resurrected until at least 1,000 years after the return of Christ. You must necessarily believe that unbelievers will not finally be judged and cast into eternal punishment until at least 1,000 years subsequent to Christ. And there are passages of Scripture which show clearly that none of those things held by premillennialism are accurate. None of them. Clear passages teaching directly on the subject to say that none of these things are accurate, but you must hold these if you're going to be a premillennialist. I don't have time... I had scriptures for each one of these. If you want to talk to me and get the support for this, then you can do so afterwards. But let's just look at one passage. Second Peter chapter three. When Jesus comes, what happens? That's the question that we're seeking to answer. When Jesus returns, what happens? The Bible teaches that the dead are raised. The Bible teaches that the earth is recreated. The Bible teaches that people are removed in judgment from one another. This all happens at the return of Jesus. And the Bible clearly teaches this in multiple places. Look at this in verse 10, 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Is that familiar? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The day of the Lord as a thief in the night. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. What happens when Christ returns? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5 clearly say when Christ returns, the dead are going to be raised. The last trumpet is sounded. And what does this say? At that day of the Lord, the earth is going to be dissolved. There's not going to be a millennial period for a thousand years where you have resurrected people living with unrighteous people who will die, where you have disembodied souls floating around Jesus or people have singular resurrections over and over and over again. None of that happens. At the day of the Lord, Christ comes back. The judgment takes place. After the dead are raised, the new heavens and the new earth are created. Passages such as 1 Corinthians 15. Passages such as this, 2 Peter Chapter 3, passages such as John 5, Acts 24, Daniel 12, passages such as 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, all of these connect in some way or the other with one another, and they all show that at the coming of Christ, there is victory.
complete, total, decisive victory, which cannot happen under a premillennial interpretation. So I believe the amillennial position teaches this glorious victory of Christ. He returns, all these things take place. And if you want uh, any further help or have any further questions about this, come talk to me. And I'll be glad to try and answer any further questions you have. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we've had together. Thank you that we can look through these things and seek to come to an understanding of Christ and what will happen at his coming. Uh, I pray that you'll continue to give us uh, grace and charity as we interact about these matters. And if we have disagreements, may we love one another in Christ and may we uh, seek to be iron sharpening iron to encourage one another in righteousness. Because when it all comes down to it, If we're saved here today, we believe Jesus is coming back and he's coming back bodily. And Lord Jesus, we will see you face to face. And we look forward to that day. And we are seeking to live righteously for your glory because we know you're coming back. And so may we hang on to these things and may we comfort one another with these things in Jesus name. Amen.